us now turn to the scriptures to Genesis 48, verses 1 through 20. I'm going to read. I've got it down 1 through 16, but I extended the reading a little bit for the sense of the ideas involved. Uh, so Genesis 48, 1 through 20. Beginning to read them with verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, A God Almighty appeared to me at Lutz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you a fruitful, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before it came to you in Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in, the, in their inheritance. But as for me... When I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth, and Joseph took them both, uh, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh to his left hand toward, uh, with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the, the God who has led me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn, but your right hand, uh, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know he also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly... His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. 
So he blessed them that day, saying, Make you uh, as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. We have here a family situation, a passing on of the inheritance or the blessing of Jacob. It's a family situation, and yet through that family situation, we we get we gain a lot of knowledge about Israel. We gain a lot of knowledge about God and how He works. We we need to to consider this story in terms of our theology, and so I've I've been organized the. A sermon this morning in three parts, the uh, common sense, divine sense, and the fact then third, thirdly that God reveals his super truth in the Bible. So we turn first of all to common sense because uh, jo- Joseph was operating on the basis of what we might call common sense. It was common in Israel in that day for uh, a father, grandfather to bless the eldest child well fathers first and then the grandfathers whoever was passing along the blessing that they would that they would bless the oldest uh, male child and that that child would then receive the family blessing and there were certain considerations in terms of inheritance for that sort of thing and it's ironical here that joseph who was the youngest son of uh of uh, uh jacob uh that he had been preferred among all his older brothers, if you remember correctly, and they, he had dreamed that dream that they would all bow down to him, even his mother and his father would bow down to him. And uh, so it's ironical here that God repeats this kind of thing. God repeats this, this uh, note or this um, exercise of sovereignty, absolute sovereignty over... Joseph's children, just as he had done over Jacob's children. Obviously, God has lessons here for us. There are things that appear ordinary for us, things that appear orderly for us, and yet they may not be according to God's eternal predeterminations or his uh, divine economy. And so God works this out through them. And, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to learn things. It's hard for us to get control to really conceive of or to appreciate the sovereignty of God. And so God was doing these things so that he might break through the common sense of people, that he might show us again and again that, that yes, we're to use our common sense, we're to use the sense that God gave us, but there are other things that God may bring to us, and, and because he is sovereign, he may arbitrarily, at least as it looks to us, arbitrarily make these determinations contra our common sense. And in this sense, the uh, the the younger, uh, the older may serve the younger, as was prophesied uh, over uh, Jacob and Esau, and uh, and over uh, Joseph, over his brothers, and here in this sense, uh, Ephraim over. Uh, Manasseh, and it's obvious that God knows that we that we have trouble understanding these things because he, he repeats the lesson over and over again, and yet it's so difficult for us to we come to things in the Bible that we question. We say, "Well, how how this just doesn't make sense?" Well, God doesn't want everything to make sense. God wants us to know first of all that He is God, and that as God He can make determinations whichever way He wants. People think that 
based upon the creation that they can then put God in a cage. And people are doing that today. Say, well, this just isn't fair, even though it's exactly what God has determined to do. We need to get our sense of fairness, not from our own minds, not from our common sense, but from the Lord. Uh, I can remember being at seminary, learning about the doctrines of Calvinism, and I knew I knew uh, so many of them before I went to seminary. But in truth, I can't say that I truly understood them or that I was uh, fully at peace with them. And I had a number of friends that were kind of quasi-Calvinists. They were Presbyterians. They came from the Presbyterian Church, and uh, and yet. Uh, they were very unsettled by these things. And, and I, I, was, I had come from such a pagan mentality myself that when I learned about the doctrines of grace and I learned about the scriptures, I learned that I have to accept them regardless of what I think. So I, I accepted these things even though I didn't fully understand them. But a lot of my friends, they didn't, they didn't fully understand them and they didn't fully accept them either. And I, I can remember thinking, to them, uh, thinking about them and their struggles in seminary thinking, you know, you guys need to buck up. You need to, you need to take uh, the truth of God or his, what he has taught, his determinations. You need to take that as gospel truth and then figure it out in your own minds how to, how to make sense of that rather than trying to base your determinations on what makes sense to you in the first place. Accept what the Lord has said. He is God, and, uh, and uh, doing things that way will help you and will make you stronger. And that's what, that's what happened to me. I mean, I just... All through my education, I, I was confirmed more and more in the wisdom of God that I accepted by faith just because I had seen the, the superiority of the Lord. And so <clears throat> this is part of the story between uh, Joseph and Jacob. Um, <clears throat> but um, uh, we also see how this testifies to our creation. In Psalm 8, God tells us that he created us in wisdom and knowledge and holiness and these kinds of things. And so um, God, just by the, our very creation, gave us a lot of, he deposited a lot of knowledge or a lot of sensibility in our brains. We just need to realize that we cannot fall back then on them or on that and then in some way use it against the Lord as if, the, the sense, the wisdom that he gave us, we can then use against him. And this is what we see in Genesis 3, where uh, Adam and Eve, when they were tempted, uh, Satan says to them, when, when, you, when you eat the forbidden fruit, he didn't say the forbidden fruit, but when you eat the fruit, that you will become like God, knowing good from evil. And that may sound winsome to us. It may sound like a positive development, but in those, in the subtle phraseology of the scriptures texts at that point, we see how uh, deadly and how toxic, how poisonous the knowledge of man can be when uh, he thinks of it in a, a way separate from the Lord and what God has told us or what God has dictated. So uh, we see here the, the common sense of Joseph. Now Joseph, he brings the boys to be blessed and <laughs> As it says in the Bible, he he puts uh, he puts uh, Ephraim, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Manasseh on his right, and then Ephraim on his right on his uh, on his, on uh, Joseph's right, because it's just the opposite. For he's standing in front of his father, so his father's right hand, which will issue the blessing, 
he wants that right hand of Jacob to face uh, Manasseh, who is the older boy. So he pushes Manasseh forward with his left hand toward the right hand of his father, and then Ephraim with his right hand toward the left hand of his father. But what does what does uh, jo- Jacob do? Jacob crosses his hands. <laughs> he puts the right hand. The Bible says the right hand on on. Uh, uh, or, uh, on, uh, right, his right hand on Ephraim's ha- head over here and his left hand on Manasseh's head over there. And it gets so protracted that Jacob or the Joseph even says, you know, Dad, you got it wrong. Dad, you got it wrong. You know, you're too old. You don't see. You got your hands crossed. You're the wrong guy. You know, the wrong son. And, and uh, Jacob's, uh, Jacob's response is, uh, uh, no son, uh, he says, I've got it right uh, because I understand something that you don't. Now, in this case, it's an, really an amazing providence because both of these men are prophets. But God had spoken to both of these men. The, the amazing revelations of God to Joseph have saved Egypt, this pagan nation, from starvation, and through them, his people Israel from starvation. So Joseph is a great prophet of his day, a great man of knowledge, a great man of revelation and of divine information and sanction. And yet we know his father was also a prophet. Uh, Jacob was also a prophet. And Jacob, even here in the scripture, uh, in verse 15 and following, he he utters these prophetic words. Uh, uh, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Speaking of Christ, a wonderful revelation in the Old Testament of of the Son, Father, Son. He speaks of him here as an angel. In Hebrew, this means messenger, not not an angel so much as we might think of angels. So it would be the, the, the messenger who has redeemed me from all evil. So uh, J- uh, this is a wonderful revelation how Jacob was aware that, that there was uh, a, a special messenger from the Father. And we think of the Logos, the divine Logos, the, me- the Word, our Lord Jesus Christ, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, who was with God. And so these, these wonderful prophetic uh, sentences from from uh, from Jacob, and they 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 cascade down upon the boys. Uh, Let my name be named upon them. Now, what was his name, Jacob? But it was changed by the Lord to Israel. It was changed by the angel of the Lord to Israel, and the people of the people of Jacob began no, became known from this day forth as the children of Israel children of Jacob. So he says, let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. Let them go. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. We know that the New Testament, the book of Romans tells us that we, the believers, the New Testament believers, the followers of Jesus, that we are the children of Abraham because we are children of faith. And he says that just as Abraham believed on me unto righteousness, so all who believe on him unto righteousness are the children of faith. So we're the children of Abraham, we're the children of Isaac, and then we are the children of Jacob. And so we are the new Israel of God. And Galatians refers to us as the new Israel of God. Um, and uh, in Israel, Israel was formed around the 12 uh, sons of, of Jacob, 
of which Joseph was one, and we are formed around the 12 sons of Jesus Christ, even the 12 apostles. Uh, so there's this wonderful symmetry between the Old Testament and the New, and the formation of the New Israel, even, uh, even the Israel that's spoken of here in Genesis 40, uh, 48. And so, um, so Joseph was a prophet. Joseph was a prophet, but Jacob was a prophet also. And God does not reveal all the time the same thing to one than the other. I, I'm always reminded of that famous story from American colonial history when uh, John Wesley. I mean, uh, um, John and who's the other Wesley? <laughs> Edward. Ed, no. Charles Wesley, yeah. Uh, John is the one I'm trying to think. I'll, I tend to get the two confused. But John had made a, a voyage to America uh, as an evangelistic journey. And he came up empty. <laughs> he preached and he, he preached. He had fine sermons, I guess. and But uh, there was no great earth-shaking development from that. And so when he returned to England, he passed George Whitfield, who was heading toward America for the same thing. In the harbor, and they, since the two ships, they they weren't they weren't uh, Whitfield's was not leaving immediately, but there was a little overlapping time. So the two of them got together and they talked. And Wesley Wesley exhorted Whitfield. He said, "Don't go to America. This is a wasted trip. I've been there. Uh, you know, God is not blessing these these ideas right now." And uh, Whitfield had a famous remark. He said that he quoted the Old Testament where one prophet had disputed with another prophet and, and said that he was going to do what God had inspired him to do. And so Whitfield went to America and the Great Awakening broke out. And it's just a famous story of how we, we sometimes we have these concerted, clear, uh, substantial ideas in our own minds, our common sense, if you will. And yet it just doesn't what, what God has ordained. And so in this case, we have not two men like Whitfield and Wesley who were not prophets, who were ordinary believers in, the, in that sense. They're both clergymen, but they weren't prophets. Here we have two prophets that are in this um, uh, discussion. And, uh, and jo Jacob trumps Joseph because of the knowledge that God has given him. And so we see, first of all, we see the common sense that is exemplified in uh, Joseph pushing the boys forward as he saw it and, and this was he was doing his best as a father using the customs of the day but then Jacob uh, uh, nullifies this idea of his son even his son is an adult too his son is the prime minister of Egypt his son is a great man but the old Jacob nullifies or rejects this, the wisdom of his son because of his greater wisdom, because God has told him that Ephraim would be the more significant brother. And it's true, when, when uh, sadly enough, when Israel divided between the north and the south in their uh, civil war, uh, who, is the, who is the tribe in the north that becomes the leader of the northern ten tribes? And the whole of the north is called, in the end, Ephraim, Judah and Ephraim. So Ephraim did become a more powerful tribe, and both for good and evil. Uh, and I've just mentioned the, the evil part and the negative part, but Ephraim became a, a very strong tribe and was uh, uh, significant, significant in terms of the defense of 
the northern ten tribes against their neighbors, against the pagan neighbors that they had. Uh, but it was also, he also was uh, significant in, in some negative ways also. But Jacob, his father, saw this. His grandfather saw this ahead of time. And so we have the common sense of people uh, measured over and against the superior sense of the Lord, and in this case, the superior sense of Jacob. And so Jacob blesses the kids. He resists Joseph's um, um, correction or challenge. He holds his hands where they are. He blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. And the, as we see in the Bible, uh, the, the history of Israel is the rest of the story. <coughs> so we see here that um, uh, we see here that we need to apply these things to our lives because we can have many ideas of common sense and um, and uh, it's just it's very good to when you're trying to think of of decisions that you're making in this world decisions that affect the church or other people's lives it's very good to to measure them by the revelation of God is this idea that I'm that I think is so important, is this idea really taught in the scriptures? Is it really a significant idea that is taught in the scriptures, or is it something that is more akin to the common sense of the people of God even, much less the common sense of people per se? We need to have these different layers of, of, of assurance in our own minds. And uh, the, the word of God is super, much superior to everything else in terms of the basic principles of life and uh, and uh, then even though the basic principles of life may seem sensical, they may work, they may have worked in many ways for uh, civilization, but they may not be agreeable to what God has written. A fantastic illustration of this is the uh, idea of polygamy versus monogamy. Now, in America, because we're a Christian nation, or we've come from Christian roots, monogamy, the marriage of one man to one woman, is the most obvious tradition that we have. That's, mo that's most common. The, the idea of polygamy, which Mormonism imported into America in, in its time, uh, because it was so strange, the Mormons were driven out of the civilized areas of the East, and that's why they settled out there in, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, out in Utah, in uh, the uh, Great Salt Lake area. Um, but uh, uh, to the people who, who had, had been born out of the Bible, uh, monogamy was the way to go. But if you look at the history of the world, history of other societies, history of antiquity, very often polygamy uh, ruled the day. Now, remember, Polygamy means uh, one man is married to a number of different women. And so most of our kids would say, well, that's crazy because that's what they're, they're not used to polygamy. They're used to monogamy. But if you come at it from a polygamous perspective, there's a lot of things that make sense about polygamy. If the purpose of, if the purpose of people is to reproduce, well, then maybe it makes sense to have uh, a bunch of women that can have babies uh, associated with one man, especially if that man is successful, the polygamist might argue, why should why should these um, some of the same arguments that we use for abortion today? 
You know, why bring children into the world when you can't really provide for them? Find that, find that man that's really successful financially and let him be the, uh, the father of many children. He can take care of them. He can, he can give them the kind of life that they deserve. And you see how that makes sense on a certain level. It's just <laughs> maybe a low, a low level. It may be a satanic level because that's not the way God created us to be, but it makes sense to people. There are all kinds of things that make sense to people. To today, our civilization, our society today is being rent asunder by ideas of equity, equality. What we say, well, isn't, isn't equality a good thing? Well, in many cases it is. But equality evidently was not a good idea between Ephraim and Manasseh, was it? Because Ephraim was, good, was made superior by God and Manasseh was made inferior by God. Manasseh was still one of the great 12 tribes of Israel and Manasseh still had a great place of honor, but he was not, he was not to be preferred above Ephraim. So it is in the, in the scriptures, in the creation, that, that women have a great honor. They have a great word. They're created in the image and likeness of God. And yet, in the marriage relationship, they are just a, a little bit inferior in, the, in the, their status of uh, marriage to uh, the, the, their husbands, who are superior. And we know, the men unhappily know that oftentimes our women are smarter than we are. But that doesn't change God's God's determinations. And we may challenge these things. We may think they don't make sense to us. That's what Joseph did. It didn't make sense to him what his father Jacob was doing, crossing his hands, crossing his blessing, blessing Ephraim. But we need to learn that God is sovereign. This is one of the great lessons of life. God exists, and God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. And he can do whatsoever he determines amongst the inhabitants of this earth and amongst the host of heaven. This is one of the simple ABCs of life, that if you get that confused, your life will not be as fruitful as it would have been otherwise. And so we need to determine, we need to realize there's a difference between common sense and divine sense, and we need to see that it's from the Bible, Second Timothy 3.16. Uh, you remember that famous verse that the Westminster Divines pinned to this idea in the Westminster Confession, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, that is, by God's outbreathing, by his direct revelation, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Righteousness is wonderful. Righteousness is the sum of all good. And so the scriptures are given to us for instruction of righteousness. That the, There's a purpose clause here. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now this doesn't teach us that the Bible is revelatory of all the of the whole encyclopedia of knowledge that God has given us to learn about this earth and the creation, but it does mean that the Bible is the fundamental paradigm by which we understand all these other fields. So that as we do medicine or biology, let's say, God has not revealed uh, very much about viruses or the difference between viruses and bacteria. But he's told us that we need to preserve life in the Ten Commandments. He's told us that we need to preserve life the best that we can. And so if we, by experimentation, find out that one 
manner of life is more productive, protective of our lives, we need to embrace that. And if we find, on the other hand, that something else is dangerous or toxic to us, uh, then we need to avoid that. And it, But if we didn't have the Ten Commandments underlying medicine or architecture or music or anything else like that, well, we just say, well, one, one note is as good as another. Uh, why, why be harmonious? We might as well be dissonant in the way that we lead our life or build our families and their lives after them. And so <clears throat> um, uh, this, all of this is illustrated by this account of how, um, of how um, Jacob uh, supervened over the sense of Joseph or over the ideas of, of Joseph. Um, we, we are being wrought, uh, we've been wrought asunder today by <coughs> so many of these um, ideas. Um, I found out just recently, I found out, uh, one, and so many of these comes via vocabulary and phraseology. And I found just recently, uh, I, I heard or it, was, I, it became clear to me um, that there was a, a, a rather significant change, a significant change that people were arguing for today, and they, they call it stakeholder capitalism versus capitalism. I thought, stakeholder capitalism? What is, what is stakeholder capitalism? Well, it's the idea of, uh, of groups like Black Lives Matter or uh, BlackRock, the um, BlackRock Corporation, where uh, in the past, property was determined by whether or not you had created it. If you'd worked for it, then it was your, then it was your property. If you'd, if you'd uh, made enough money to buy a piece of property, a piece of land, and a house, then that was yours. But of course, in this, we're, we're moving in our day toward a, a different way of thinking. And so, um, people, uh, people like Al Sharpton came along 50 years ago, 40 years ago, and... Um, even though they didn't own a company, they would go to a company and they would say, if you don't give us money to fund our organization, then we're going to put out a bad word about you. And this scared enough corporations that they coughed up millions and millions of dollars to pay uh, his organization at that time. Well, um, when, you, when, you, when the company is not yours, but you control it, then you are, you are, this is what stakeholder capitalism is. And so uh, today, there are a whole bunch of liberals, I would call them anti-Christian, anti-biblical people, who are trying to control the capitalism or the private property of others by, uh, by what they do. And it's, it's the equivalent in terms of society of a squatter. You know, a squatter just moves into your house. And he, he, you come home and you find there's a whole family living there and he, they say, this is our house. You say, no, this is our house. And uh, you call the police and the police come and the people say, well, we've been living here. The possession is nine-tenths of the law. And so you, you have to go to court and you find in a good situation today, it can take you at least a month to get back into your own house if some squatter just moves in. 
you think you'd have more power and more rights than that. But that's the way people are today. People are they're confusing the rights of private property. They're confusing what I did, what I created, versus what you just took from me or squatted upon. And, uh, you know, in the Bible, God says ultimately that everything is his. And so the, the Amorites or the, all the Canaanite tribes at one time had lived in Egypt. And the Bible says God cast them out. God, God re, 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 took back his the rights of property because he's the ultimate landlord. He's the ultimate property owner. But uh, but the people there are still wars are being fought in the Middle East over what God did. So uh, we find that we've got the, some of the same stuff going on today, where people are um, uh, refusing the basic laws or the basic way that God has organized the creation, in this case, with the idea of private property, he tells us in Genesis that we are to go out and subdue the, cultivate the earth and subdue it. And when we cultivate the earth, then, then that's that's ours. We, we work it. We make that land better. We bring crops in out of it. We, we stake our claims upon it. But the modern mind, in its common sense, it says, no, that's the old way of looking at things. We've got a new and improved way of doing things. And what, what's, what's yours is now mine, and what's mine is mine. <laughs> that's the way we find ourselves today. But God's word, ultimately, without God's word, we have no way of defining these things out. And so it behooves us, and it's on the basis of that that... that uh, that Jacob uh, withstands Joseph's hands, Joseph's directions, and he says, no, this is the way God has ordained things to be. And, the, and Jacob was right. And what Jacob said stood the test of time in Israel's history. And so we see here that Christ is the key, as it says in Colossians, Christ is the key for all of these things. We're living in a day where we must we must remind people that Jesus is not just superior in terms of redemption. There's no other way to be saved, but there's no other way to live. If you do not accept Jesus' definitions, remember Jesus' definitions are not just the red letters of the New Testament, because the whole Bible was created in him and through him and for him. It was through him that the world was created. It was through him that it says in John 1. It was through him that the word of God came to us. And so without bowing our knee before the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing else makes sense. And if, if you reject Christ, brothers and sisters, if you reject Christ, you have no basis to get the squatters out of your house if they move in. So out of out of self-preservation, if for nothing else, we ought to recognize the sovereignty of Jesus Christ and recognize the great debt that we owe to him and to the Bible for the development of Western culture. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the wisdom that you gave Jacob and for the illustration this provides us of, the, of another of the wonders of Jesus Christ that our Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior, but he's also our Lord. And as Lord and as Revealer, as Prophet, Priest, and King, he is uh, the great inspiration for all of life. We pray, O oh Lord, that if we hang on to our, our, our salvation, if our salvation is, is special to us, if it's precious to us, 
We pray likewise, O Lord, that we might hang on to Christ himself and to all of his revelation, the whole counsel of God. Let us not despise the things that Christ has written, but let us hang on to them and esteem them. They are precious unto us. They are the very basis of life today. And let us tell our neighbors, help us to understand these things well enough that we can explain them to our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.